Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yes. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to A Musical Journey Like No Other, giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan, and this is the 19th step on this interstellar musical expedition. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for being fans. Thanks for tuning in. On this episode, like almost every episode of 33, we have a world premiere of a song from the album, Autumn. This time, the song is titled To the Greys. As always, we're going to break down the story, the lyrics, and the melodies of the song with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. We're also diving into classic tracks from the Billy Corgan catalog. Today, we're listening to the song By June, originally released in the 1989 demo album Moon. It later appears on the Lull EP and then again on the 2012 reissue of Pisces Iscariot. Unfortunately, we do have some heartbreaking losses in the world of music and personally with Billy. Jeff Beck passing away at the age of 78 and then Lisa Marie Presley passing away at just the age of 54 years old. She passed away yesterday as we record this. So we're going to be talking a lot about them joining us on this incredible journey. Couch surfing with us, I'll say on this journey, is my friend and broadcast partner, Kyle Davis. You know, they say you can't go home again. You can, but you're going to be sleeping on a couch. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure you like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it, be it iTunes, Spotify, iHeart app, wherever you get your podcast. Go over to WPC33.com. Continue the conversation there. Hashtag WPC33. Have a discussion with us. Give us some info. Find out all the things you need to know and make sure that you are going to smashingpumpkins.com 
merch, info about upcoming events. March 4th, Mexico City. World is a Vampire Festival. It is going to be, as the kids say, lit. Be a part of that. And also, there might be some more dates coming up in the future. But besides that, Billy, I know that uh, you're going through a lot right now. I'm going through a lot right now. Joe, seems like you're doing great, actually. So one out of three ain't bad. How's everybody doing today? Kyle, I've got to know, you are home. You have returned to Connecticut to be with mother. Six-week journey. Uh, a six-week uh, roundabout. <laughs> Did your mother give away your childhood bedroom, or is why are you on the couch? That's My what I childhood bedroom is now a giant walk-in closet, and it is still has mirrors on the wall, because when I first got into getting in shape, I was like, let me put mirrors so I could feel cool about myself, and also when I had fun with uh, one of my lady friends. But, so now it's just a walk-in closet, so I'm sleeping on a couch. I'm on a six-week journey, and then I'll be back in Orlando in March. So let's see what life has to bring here while I figure out what life is now as Kyle is uh, changing everything about himself and learning to be alone. Because I know there's a whole Kyle crew out there. Oh, not really. <laughs> the Kyle crew, they're, they're wondering. We want to hear week. from you. Use the yeah. hashtag Kyle's going to Kyle, Kyle <laughs> and we'll find you on social media, and we'll I gauge like Kyle you in crew. Kyle crew? It's like, not a divorce. Yeah, you want crew, crew with a K? K-Y-L-E. It's not a divorce if you were never married. There you go. Let's talk first about Mr. Jeff Beck before we get it into um, my friend Lisa. Uh, Jeff Beck, never met him, unfortunately. Never met him. But I've met many people who worked with Jeff Beck. And I have to say, he probably had one of the greatest reputations of any legend in the music business that I've ever heard. I think the greatest thing that anyone ever told me about Jeff Beck was... When you're with Jeff, he wants to talk about two things, guitars and cars. And if he's not noodling on a guitar, he's got his head under a car hood and he's tinkering with a car. See, there's a perfect example in in Mr. Beck of someone who devoted himself to music. And if you listen to his playing most recently on Ozzy Osbourne's recent solo album, he plays this incredible solo in, in a very rock, like hard rock vein. Never lost his chops always was on the progressive end of playing his guitar, widely regarded as one of the best guitar players ever, and yet had this kind of beautiful, uncompromising career where he was in a pop band when he was young, which was the Yardbirds, and then just went on and did his own thing for the rest of his life. And fans rallied around and celebrated his independence. And as long as he stayed connected to his guitar, they stayed with him up until the very end. So a very sad loss in, uh, in Mr. Jeff Beck. And, and I think, you know, we're at a point now where, unfortunately, you know, people in the known are dying all too frequently because we're at that point where celebrity, media culture, and where people are on the age spectrum, you know, this is going to be part of our life now. It's unfortunately, someone's always passing away. The the, the young guy, obviously now older, Adam from uh, Eight is Enough, which was a kid I watched as a kid, just passed away in his 50s. But in Mr. Beck's case, I think it's worth noting his passing, not only out of respect, of course, but also that he had an influence on the Smashing Pumpkins. When I was quite young and really studying guitar players, everybody was always pointing to Eric Clapton. Clapton is God, most famously written as graffiti in London in the 60s. You know, it was just kind of widely understood that Clapton was the guy. Even Eddie Van Halen, who I once interviewed for Guitar World, I think, I asked Eddie, like, who was your guy? And he said, Clapton. You know, and I was like, well, I don't really hear that in your playing. And then Eddie literally sat there and played perfect Clapton for me on the guitar, which is kind of a surreal experience. Like he had completely absorbed Clapton and integrated it somehow into his style, which you don't really hear it, but he could play Clapton note for note. So my father was very picky about his guitar players. And so at some point I wound around in a conversation 
with my father about Clapton. And my father said, ah, Clapton, ugh. Stuck his uh, finger down his throat. And let me say, before I kind of go on with the story, I'm a huge Clapton fan. I think Clapton's fantastic. I saw Eric Clapton a couple years ago in Germany, I think 2019, when we were on tour at the arena in Berlin, and it was great to see him. And one little personal note, after we won our Grammy, I believe, for Bullet for Butterfly Wings, I came down the aisle. And this quote I'm about to say that came from my father, but was attributed to me talking about my father, I have a feeling that Mr. Clapton might have seen. So he was sitting like two rows away from me, and I was kind of almost feeling weird. Like, what if he thinks I said this about him, what I'm about to tell you my father said? And after I won my Grammy and came back down the aisle, Mr. Clapton turned, stuck out his hand and said, congratulations, which meant a lot to me. So my father said, uh, Clapton stuck his fingers on his throat. I said, don't listen to Clapton. He sucks. Again, this is for my father. I didn't say this. Clapton really is God. He really is that good. My father, typical, Clapton sucks. Listen to Jeff Beck. I thought, Jeff Beck. Now, Jeff Beck, to me, as a young guitar player, sounded too weird, too jazzy, too out there. But my father's point about Jeff Beck was he had impeccable tone and, and attack. And my father was obsessed with the attack of guitar players, most famously Albert King. And if you're a guitar player, you kind of know what I'm talking about because you hear that attack in Jimi Hendrix, in Stevie Ray Vaughan. It's a certain kind of a, and Van Halen and, and Eric Clapton. It's a, it's a certain kind of way of attacking the guitar. Uh, there's a physical aspect, actually, how you hit the strings, but it comes out to the listener as a sort of a form of attack. Uh, and it is called attack in, uh, in, in guitar terms. And so I started listening to Jeff Beck from the perspective of his tone and his attack, because I didn't really understand what he was doing musically. Later, I became more of a fan and understood it and then appreciated not only what he'd done to the Yardbirds, but also what he'd done as a solo artist. And I would always pay attention through the years when different things would come out with him, including him playing on Ozzy's new record, because he's such a sort of regal musician, and he stands so outside pop culture but he's the perfect example of an artist who went all in on his ability and his taste for music, and he was rewarded for it because he was that good. So lots of respect to uh, Mr. Beck. I think we should save the the talk about my friend Lisa because there's no simple way to get into it until the next segment. Kyle, well, you have a question? Jeff Beck, 16 Grammy nominations, 8 wins, 78 years old, a life well-lived, big bucket of win. He will be missed. Yeah, and even... Um, you know, just to tell a little side story that connects back to SP, uh, recently I worked with Bones UK, Carmen from uh, Bones UK. You know, basically Jeff Beck sort of discovered her or found her or fell in love with her playing, and she ended up touring or playing on stage with Jeff Beck. And he was like almost like a mentor to her. And this is a young musician in her in her 20s and had an influence on her playing, and she's in a, in a cool alternative pop duo you know, essentially out of the UK. And I just saw Carmen, you know, about a month ago and we were talking about Jeff Beck and Jeff Beck's influence on her as a person and a musician. So just that legacy, that echo that runs through other people, I think uh, Mr. Beck's name will not be easily forgotten. And when you think of that trio of guitar players that came out in the UK scene at the same time, Beck, Clapton and Page, and you think of their influence on music going into the 21st century, it's, it's, uh, it's quite stunning. It's quite, Joe, I'm sorry. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that we had a lot of time to talk about Lisa Marie Presley, but also I know a lot of our listeners are always interested into hearing the story on how Autumn is progressing. So I wanted to just shift gears for a little bit here and talk a little bit about To the Grays and see where we are in the story. Kyle's well, very start, excited. 
He is Kyle's like very, wound up like a, like a spring ready to explode. Because I speculated, if you listen to this podcast back in the day, you know we used to bring up, have you had an alien experience? Have you had something like that happen? And then when I saw the title, I just thought to myself, to the grays, is this where it happens? Is it turns out that this, this group that's taken over, the villains of our story, are they aliens? And is this them giving it all to the grays? <laughs> that's what I thought was going to happen. I'm pretty damn sure I'm wrong, though. E.T. phone home, Kyle. Ooh. I love your enthusiasm. Young Kyle. To the Grays is an illusion. A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. An illusion to the Gray aliens. Kind of a wink and a nod. In terms of the story with Autumn, June is leading her space armada, as I refer to it in the story, of thousands of ships breaking away out of orbit, and they're all heading towards the sun. Of course, why did June do this? She's chasing Shiny metaphorically. Whether or not she'll find him and get there in time, she does not know. To June's amusement or joy, she sees Shiny's ship stopped. Shiny's ship stopped. She sees Shiny's ship. <laughs> See, I know I was going to mess up. You had it. We write the she, first two. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> see, see, she, <laughs> she sees Shiny's ship stopped and she's overjoyed. Oh my God, there he is. Now, the ship is facing towards the sun at the Paraleon. A friend actually sent me how to pronounce the word, and I'm saying it wrong, but I'm going to stick with Paralyon. Paralyon? Paralyon is, the, I think, the correct pronunciation. Paralyon. Uh, shiny at the edge of the sun where he can go no further. He'll be uh, into the gravity of the sun and, and burn up. And she's overjoyed. So here comes the space armada. And just as she gets there, oh, my God, there's Shiny. There's the ship. She's found him. Ba ba ba. Shiny's ship turns. No one knows why. And starts to head back towards Earth as June and her space armada cross the perileon towards the sun. So that's what the song is about. But once they cross that line, it's too late, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's too late to turn back now. It's too late. Yeah, that's what I was going to turn back mind. now. There is that song. I believe, I believe, I believe I'm falling in <laughs> is, love. Is that the song that, that's playing in Shiny Ship as it goes back the other <laughs> Maybe. way? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe in a Guardians of the Galaxy way. That, yeah. is the, that is the song. Uh, I believe it's the Spinners. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is the Spinners. Back yeah. Oh, great. Joe's DJ <laughs> passed. Um, no, so Shiny's ship turns for forces unknown and uh, starts to head back towards Earth as June passes Shiny's ship and her and her space armada continue on past the Paralyon towards certain death. And uh, seeing as we're talking about a lot of death on this podcast, I guess it's apropos. I don't mean to jest. uh my heart's heavy, but it helps to laugh a little bit. And certainly my friend Lisa liked a good joke, so she wouldn't mind. So here's the thing. June's singing this song to the Grays, and she's singing about her relationship to Shiny. So when she sees his ship, it's like, duh, here it is. Here's the moment I've dreamt of. Here's the moment I imagined. Here's the moment I've conceived of. See, I really am meant to be in your life. I really am the person that you're singing about in your songs. I really am June. There is a June. And I am that June, not that shiny, not that shiny knows, <laughs> but uh, that's for that's for another that's subject. So another upsetting segment. to me that he will never know, possibly, what he meant to this individual. And I, oh, this this feels like a. I, I, I love I love how you have no magic in your heart to believe that miracles can happen. Just just, just stay with the story, Kyle. Let me not lose you now. Let. Let you not be one of those uh, people in the airport that I meet that go, oh, after Gish, I just couldn't really get into it. No, I'm on going. the journey with you. I'm I'm doing the ups. I'm doing the downs. And right now, I'm just like, where do we go now? Let me do my guy at the airport Gish imitation. Hey, man, bro, big fan. I was there from Gish, man. 
after that, though, I, I just couldn't, I don't know, just couldn't really understand what you guys were doing. But Gish, man, amazing. Hey, Billy, I like Zwan, too, so I'm there for the ride. Well, good you mentioned that because the Zwan reissue is being prepared as we speak. Tape transfers are being made, so hopefully soon we'll be on a different podcast called Something Else or the extension of this podcast talking about the Zwan Zwan song. So when we come back, because <laughs> I could see Joe's nice face. Joe's, uh, uh, thank you. Joe's uh, uh, broadcasting uh, sentience kicking in. It's time to get out of this segment. So when we come back, the world premiere to the grace. Available now for podcasts. <laughs> Help me get off my mother's couch. <laughs> now available for pre-order at MadamZuzus.com. The autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by the Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act 33-song rock opera that is Autumn and 10 exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA. Three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you. Do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Search Women Take the Mic to listen to a collection of international Women's Day episodes from iHeart's top podcasts, including Dear Chelsea, The Psychology of Your 20s, and Lip Service. It's a great way to support women and discover your new favorite show. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more and listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone, to the 33 Podcast. This is William Patrick Corrigan on a very somber occasion. But first, we celebrate the release of a new Smashing Pumpkin song, To the Greys. And as I said, this is June singing as he sees Shiny's ship shining in the sunlight. Please enjoy.
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to the world premiere of To the Grays right here on the 33 podcast. Billy, a lot of stuff going on this week. I know we've already talked a little bit about this song, and there's just so much going on, and I'm not exactly sure where you want to go from here. Well, you know, um, I had wanted to talk about some other stuff, which is why I didn't want to have a guest this week, but then the news of my friend's death, Lisa Marie Presley, I feel this would be the time to talk about that because it does dovetail into some issues that we touch on here. I certainly mostly want to keep it to the personal side of the person that I know. I think through that I can illustrate some things that do, like I said, dovetail to issues that we discuss because obviously someone like Lisa was born into fame. Um, I had a conversation with her once where I was like, how crazy is it you were born famous? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, from the day you were born, you were famous. She didn't understand the concept because she'd only known being Elvis's daughter. You know what I mean? It's hard for her to understand the difference. And I was like, do you understand? Like, I knew who you were when I was a kid. Like, you were famous to me as a kid because we were sort of the same. I'm a little bit older. So I was like, think about it. Like, when I was like five years old, I was like seeing pictures of you on television. <laughs> You know what I mean? As a as a baby, like you understand, you it's were the, famous it's the closest to me. My thing whole, royalty. Yes, I used to tell her she's rock royalty, and um, of course she would laugh at that. Gosh, it's so hard when you're talking about someone who's passing. It's um, you're sort of in the shock phase. I don't even know where to start, other than maybe let's start at the beginning, because, like I said, I I want to talk about my friend. I think the fact that people know who I'm talking about is part of that. But I just want to talk about my friend. And if it's indulgent, then it's indulgent. It's my podcast. Because Lisa's somebody that people need to know. And in many ways, people really don't know her as much as people think they did. Because like myself, they grew up seeing her, whether it was her famous marriage or her somewhat aborted recording career, of course, or being you know a child of fame. But uh, my first sort of moment with Lisa Marie Presley in the public sphere is kind of a funny one. We were doing the MTV Awards, and that was the year of the famous Michael Jackson, Lisa Marie Kiss, which we were there for. We were in the audience for that. And to me, it was so obviously staged. You know, it felt so strange. In my mind, it was responding to whatever the rumors were about him, and it felt like a PR stunt. And up until that point, you know, to me, she was just Elvis's daughter. She wasn't a real person. And at that moment, I thought, wow, that's strange that she would go along with that because I always thought she was kind of smarter, cooler than that. So it seems strange to me. So fast forward another, only really only a couple years, uh, she's no longer with Michael Jackson and we get to know each other. And the thing about Lisa as a person, which I found really shocking in a good way, was she was completely unaffected by Hollywood. She was completely unaffected by being Elvis's daughter. She was as honest and straightforward a person as you can meet and really, really kind, which is not something you normally associate with the children of particularly super, super famous people because they've grown up in a certain kind of glow or shadow or, I mean, you can... There's a lot of analogies there, and she was certainly aware of that. So as I got to know her and realized that I could pretty much ask her anything, and I do mean anything, I asked her all those questions that, you know, were on my mind, and I always got a straight answer. So eventually we wound around to the subject of the the kiss, and uh, she was like, oh, I was fully aware of what you said. (laughs) 
And I felt kind of embarrassed because now this is my friend and I feel bad that I was sort of impugning her integrity in the situation. She's like, no, um, trust me, uh, we all heard about what you said. And, um, you know, I thought it was funny because she said, you know, it was essentially true. But she did tell me that she did love Michael Jackson. And she went on to tell me, you know, many things which I don't feel at liberty to discuss, maybe someday. But certainly she told me, look, look, Here's the thing about Lisa that was interesting. Because of the world she grew up in, she could talk about famous people, and in this case, her ex-husband, as if they were real people, where I was still kind of caught in the, the thing of celebrity, like celebrity comes first, and then there's this other person behind there. When you talk to Lisa, you would just talk about the person, Michael Jackson, which is weird because even now, with all that we know, it's still hard to wrap your head around Michael Jackson, the person, because Michael Jackson's celebrity has, I think, even grown after his death. A myth of sorts. I mean, you hear stories about individuals, especially him, that you'll never be able to know one way or the other. Well, trust me, I I did point out to her <laughs> the, the obviousness of like, you know, your father is one of the most famous people ever, and you married one of the most famous people ever. Kind of an odd combo. Again, the irony was not lost on her. But what she did say was, look, I love this person. And she described for me falling in love, being in love, and the person that she fell in love with, to illustrate it in simple terms without giving away too much personally. She said, you got to understand, this is one of the smartest, most talented people in the world. Do you understand the charisma, the, the energy in a person like that? Do you understand why that would be attractive to me? And I was like, wow, I never had even thought of it that way. And that is how Lisa was. And to take that a step further, one night we were in a club and I found myself, you know, club's kind of dark, you know, the lights are glowing, but it's kind of dark, you know. We were sitting next to each other as we often did when we were in public. She'd provide a running commentary and whoever was in front of us. And I found myself turning and looking at her and I had this sort of insane moment where you know, her profile in particular, certainly her face was her father's, you know, and there's a lot of resemblance there. Plus her mother is quite beautiful. But from the profile, I mean, it was like looking at Elvis. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? It's like, again, we're talking about someone in Elvis who's such a mythological creature that you sometimes it's hard to get to the source of like, wow, that was a real person with a family and in, in this case, his child, Lisa. And then this particular night, I found myself staring at her profile because I was like, you know, you're basically sitting next to Elvis's kid. You understand? It's like, this is kind of an interesting moment I was having. I don't want to oversell it, but it's hard to explain other than it's the myth becomes flesh and blood, a real person. And through Lisa, I met her family. I met all the uncles and got to know her mother. And, you know, so I, I was around the Presleys a lot. So I... It's not like I just was a tourist in this. I was around that family in a particular time in my life a lot. You know, parties, birthday parties, kids' parties, stuff like that. Anyway, so for whatever reason, it might have been because I was staring at her, you know, and I'm I'm going to probably make this part up, but, she, you know, she, something like she said, what, or, you know, what are you staring at me for? And I was just like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to get away from the fact that you're Elvis's daughter. And she said, can I ask you a question? And I want an honest answer. And I said, yeah. 
And you remember, this is like in a club. It's just kind of loud, but, you know, so we're just having this very private conversation. She said, what did you think of my father? And I said, in what way? And she said, as a musician. What do you think of my father as a musician? And I said, your father was a genius. She said, why? I said, because he, he brought together worlds of music that no one had ever been able to bring together. And he did it so gracefully. And he had such a vision. And whether it was intuitive or natural or was just because of his talent, do you understand? He merged the world. He might have done more to break down racial strife in America than any other single person beyond Martin Luther King. You understand? He was a titanic figure. But in music, I mean, he was a stone-cold genius. She was surprised by that. In subsequent conversations, one I probably shouldn't share, but, but I can share the context of the conversation. I had this moment where I was talking to her about her father, and I had this like, duh, dummy moment, me, dumb being the dummy. <laughs> like, she's talking about her father. Do you understand? He's not a mythological creature to her. He is a man who's passed away, and she's still grieving and missing her father. And so from that point on, whenever we discussed her father, we always talked about him as the person first and the myth second. And that um, illustrates not only who she was and who she was trying to figure out to be in the world, and we did end up working together on music. And I I was thinking today, I I regret not taking a more um, possessive role because I think she wanted me to. She wanted me to kind of step in and kind of take over some of her music stuff. And I was so busy at the time. And I knew it was going to be kind of pop world, um, which at the time I would kind of blanched at. Now it would seem pretty normal. Everybody's all over the place. But at the time in the late 90s, it was a bit kind of more segmented. Um, And we did write some songs together, one of which she did record. Um, And I was disappointed with the way it had turned out because, of course, she turned it over to like, you know, the, the typical people you do and they made it all shiny and glossy where it was really meant to be like a soul song, which really showed off her voice. And let me tell you, um, she really did have a great voice that the world never really got to hear. I mean, you can go listen to recordings, but her true talent as a vocalist and what she brought to the table, which like her father was like a very unique set of pipes with the ability to sing soul in a particular way. She had that naturally, but no one ever really cultivated because they always went to the shiny end of the room of like, oh, it's Elvis's daughter. We can get a a crossover pop single out of her. Anyway, I'm rambling around a bit, but but do you think I, I want to? I just want to bridge off this, and you know, Elvis. I think his level of genius that you're talking about sometimes in in the zeitgeist of the world gets diminished by what was happening in his later years. Granted, he only passed away when he was 42. But did you see? Like, obviously, Lisa Marie had all of that incredible talent that was there. Did you see that if with the right coaching and and with the right environment, was there still also a possibility for that level of of genius when it comes to the music side with her? I think that's a yes and no question. I think given the right people to work with, and we have seen it from other um, children of talented people, Willa Smith is an example where the child can step outside the shadow of the family and kind of forge their own path, but using the gifts of the family, including, and, and I don't mean this in any negative way, including the gift of the family name. I don't see that as a bad thing. I, I think if my children go on into the arts, I, I think they should take the Corgan name forward proudly. But, you know, there's a lot of, I guess this gets into the hard part. 
I, I voiced my own regret, which is I wish I'd taken more possession because I think deep down she wanted me to sort of comment. She wasn't a musician. She was a talented person who, given the right situation. But, you know, I don't know, and we had these conversations, I don't know what it's like to be Elvis's daughter. You know, I mean, I don't really know what that feels like. I can't even begin. And she told me, <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine because the weight of that world, I mean, I talk regularly about the weight of being expected to live up to stuff I did 25, 30 years ago. Imagine being expected to live up to the level of literally the most famous musician in modern history, starting in the 20th century. There's no one more famous than Elvis. Legacy can be quite the burden, especially if it's that weightful. So you're absolutely correct. Right. So so imagine if she just had a really, really good musical career, say to the level of a Sheryl Crow or, you know, somebody who we would look at and say, wow, oh, that's a great singer, great songwriter. I mean, set against Elvis, it's it's you're not even halfway. But you would never say that Sheryl Crow has not had a fantastic musical life. Very talented person. So Lisa had that kind of talent, but did the weight of the expectation, did the estate money disincentivize her from sticking her neck out too far? I, I don't know. I don't know. And that's sort of part of the regret. Lisa also had children very young. And I want to read something here that I saw that she had posted. I hadn't seen this post before. Her children were everything. I got to know her in her time when her uh, children, um, sorry, I'm getting emotional, so it's hard to think, Riley and Ben were, were quite young. I mean, little kids, like the, the ages of my children, like seven and four. That's, that's, we, I, we once went to Susical together as a, as a family, me and the, and the, and the Presleys. And um, Lisa was so mad because her kids were little and they were enjoying this very horribly done Broadway musical and and she had gotten the tickets and I sat there the whole time making fun of the musical. She was so mad at me because I was ruining it for her kids. And now that I have kids, I understand even more why she was so mad at me. Anyway, her children were everything. So that I do think had an influence because she chose, unlike many people of my generation, to uh, to have children quite young. She wanted children. Um, Her children were her entire life. And then subsequently had twins who I think I'm looking up last night uh, after seeing what had happened with her, uh, the twins are now 14 and I have, I have met the twins, you know, uh, gosh, this is where your brain just scrambles because you go into like grief and regret and sorrow. And let me read this quote because, um, like I said, she's talking here about her son, uh, Ben who, um, killed himself. And the last time I saw Ben and Lisa together was at the funeral of, uh, Priscilla's, uh, stepfather, Paul Boulou, Boulou um, who was the man who famously, uh, he was in, I think, in the Air Force. When Elvis was in Germany, stationed in Germany, and that's when he met Priscilla, uh, Paul Boulou was the gentleman, her stepfather, the, that allowed the courtship to proceed. So imagine, um, fast forward how many years later, I'm sitting in the funeral of Mr. Boulou, um with the Presleys and with Priscilla's the side of the family, the Bilyeu family. Wild, right? So why why am I at the funeral of Mr. Bilyeu? Um, Bilyeu? Lisa called me up. She knew I was in LA and she said, I'm going to go to this funeral. It's going to be super stressful. I need you to go with me. <laughs> and I said, why me? And she said, don't ask, just go. I need you to go. 
So I go to this funeral and I'm sitting there, you know, as they're mourning someone I didn't know, never met, at least not that I remember. I might have, you know, reminiscing on the fact that this was the man that ushered in this great romance between Priscilla and Elvis, which produced Lisa. And I grew up hearing about this romance. I mean, it's the tabloid part of, right? You know, it's like, it's this great love, right? When I'd seen Ben, I hadn't seen him for years. And so we'd seen each other a couple times. And now he's an older, wisecracking 20-something when I'd known him as more as a little kid. You know, just, I guess, the 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 enduring memory of, of Lisa's love for her children and then mix that in somehow with my own memory of being asked to be at a funeral, to be there with the family. It's just so crazy. But that sort of sums up Lisa. It was like, she kind of lived a very lonely life. She had marriages. She had friends, very few, but she did have friends. She trusted very few people. This is not to brag, but she told me things that I, I like, I know the world doesn't know about <laughs> all sorts of things. And I realize now in her death that she really trusted me. And, and it's a responsibility, right? Because even here today, I'm picking my words wisely because I don't want to betray any confidence. Um, it's an enormous responsibility when someone that you love and loves you back, and you know from the first time that you meet them that you have this connection, uh, you can't really put your finger on it. It's somewhere between friendship and a love relationship, more like maybe brother and sister. And uh, it never changed. You know, we always had that. So I want to read this Thing that she posted, and then I want to talk about this because I think it's a way to kind of wrap this up without going into too much indulgence here. This is what she posted on her Instagram after her son passed away. My beautiful, beautiful angel, I worship the ground you walked on, on this earth and now in heaven. My heart and soul went with you. The depth of the pain is suffocating and bottomless without you every moment of every day. I will never be the same. Please wait for me, my love, and hold my hand why I stay to continue to protect and raise your little sisters and to be here for Riley. That's his sister and her daughter. I know you would want that. Happy birthday, my sweet boy. You were much too good for this world. When her son died, it just destroyed her. It just absolutely destroyed her. And as a friend, right, we're talking about the person here. As a friend, it was just impossible to know what to do. Uh, I would text her just to check in. Hey, how's it going? No response. I, I'd never known her like that. I didn't know what to do. And and I'm speaking to anybody who's in these situations with friends who are struggling. It's so difficult, right? What do you do? Do you keep texting? Hey, what's up? You know? So when we would communicate, and we did here and there, and sometimes through friends, it was at least reassuring to me that she knew I was still there and, and that the day would come that we um, could sit and talk again about stuff that mattered to both of us. And uh, unfortunately, that did, day didn't come. Uh, I mean, we did talk after her son died, but her grief was just paralyzing to me as a, as a person. I'm a person who thinks he's pretty smart and can kind of navigate most things. And I didn't know how to navigate that. Her son really was her sunshine. You know, he was a incredibly bright, handsome, talented kid who, like her, never really got himself up off the ground. Now, her daughter went on to not only be on the cover of Vogue and be one of the top models in the world, but has had a successful movie career. So Lisa really struggled with that because her love for her children was equal. And I can say that in 
without any uh, hesitation. So to watch her celebrate her daughter's success and privately grieve over what her son was struggling with. So when that came to its uh, conclusion with his suicide, as a mother who adored her children, and I mean adored, the the children wanted for nothing. She really was that mother that was there for him. Her, him, them. I know that it it just destroyed her. I don't want to say she was never the same. I can't say that, but it felt that way. And I think those who loved her, and and I am in a close circle of people who were her close friends, we all talked privately about our struggle to keep her connected because we all would say, hey, have you talked to her? Yeah, I texted her. She didn't write me back. And these were all people she was friends with for 20 years, 30 years. These were really close, intimate friends. I don't want to say, to wrap this up, I don't want to say it, you know, it's, 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 it would, well, it's tragic because her life ended too soon. Yes. Okay. That's easy. The hard part is, well, what do you do with that? Right? Because there are the children and uh, they're going to need a lot of love. And, you know, I'm not close to the children, so I, I don't have any help there. So I guess this is my one step in the right direction towards helping. I think uh, for anybody who's a spiritual person like I am, say a prayer for somebody who, you know, if you're around my age or close, this is somebody who was in our lives, our whole lives. And maybe we, I don't want to say took for granted, that's not the right way to say it, but it's like she was always kind of there, right? Because she was part of our world. So we lost a lot yesterday, we taping the day after her death. We lost somebody that was in our lives but we also lost sort of like like many of us, and I would include myself in my own way. Not all our dreams come true. Not everything turns out yellow brick road and the, and the red shoes and you get to go home. In the case of Elvis's sole child, Ellen P., as her friends called her, she never quite got there. But let me tell you, and maybe this is where it always hit a certain bone with me, there's a lot of similarities there in a way, between Lisa and my own mother. A certain brilliance and a certain brightness, and you can't quite put your finger on why it is they can't put the pieces together. Obviously, my mother never dealt with the circumstances that Lisa dealt with. But I can say, uh, without reservation, that this was a bright, really funny, really engaging, one of a kind. And in that, and I don't mean to make this about Elvis, Again, I'm talking about the personal. When I saw that in her, I understood why Elvis was Elvis and what made the Presleys special. There's a spirit, there's a there's a sort of a a certain angle on life. And when you think of Elvis at his best, just totally in his body, totally connected to the song, no one did it better, right? Well, Lisa had that in her. And for whatever reason, wasn't able to connect that same way. So for me, it went kind of 360. On one level, I get insight into a icon and the father and the man, which was cool, right? She trusted me with that. And there's information, you know, like I said, that she told me that I know isn't public. So think of, think of that. It's a great honor, right? Like, I'm trusting you with these things with my family, my father means a lot to me in hindsight, you know? And then on the same token, trying to understand 
why do I see these things in her too that her father had and make her special? And why is she not able to share that with the world? And I think that's part of the loss because I think for our generation who grew up with Elvis and grew up with the Presley name in the papers every day, I think it's a sad sort of coda that she never quite got there the way she wanted. And I think it does illustrate on some level why her children were so valuable and important to her because it allowed her that sense of ownership and pride in a way that she was never able to establish with her own sort of public life path. Not private, private, totally different story. Happy, what do I put this way? A person you'd want to hang out with. Okay, so we'll stop there. Uh, When we come back, we'll listen to By June, and uh, you're listening to 33. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Search Women Take the Mic to listen to a collection of international Women's Day episodes from iHeart's top podcasts, including Dear Chelsea, The Psychology of Your 20s, and Lip Service. It's a great way to support women and discover your new favorite show. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more and listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, June. Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to By June, a really good classic track, in my opinion. It feels like, Billy, that this was kind of one of those sorts of songs that was just done all at one time. Like, this was a one-shot, here we go, you go into the studio, you have the guitar, and bam, that's, the song comes together like, in, a, in a beautiful way. And so I, I'm interested to hear about how the song was created. I just want to throw this out there. 1989 demo. This is 34 years almost old. You have 34 years of a music catalog. I don't want to make you feel like like this is a big thing, but damn, man, you have a career that has just decades now. That's impressive. Father time. Father time. That's all I think when you say 34 years. We've talked about it at different times, not here on the podcast, but um, for those who wouldn't know, in 1989, the band had saved up a little bit of money. I think it was about $2,000, which in 89 money was no, um, no small pile of money. And uh, 
the reason we'd saved up that money is we had a rule in the band that no one would take money from gigs, that any monies that we made from gigs after paying for gas and orange juice had to go into a kitty pile. And then one day I announced to the band, look, no one wants to sign us. We're going nowhere. So I think we should go and make this, make our own album. And so a, a man who I knew from the local record store I worked at called Mark Inafo had a basement studio about two blocks away from the record store. And uh, we started recording over there, and the band got pretty bored pretty quickly. They thought this should be like a five-day endeavor, and I turned it, of course, into a you know, four-month endeavor. And so I spent all the money that we had, but it ended up working out because it was this music which got us a record contract in the long arc of the thing. By June was one of those songs that I'd written and didn't really know what to do with because we were a rock band. So I'm writing acoustic songs. So I just went in and recorded the song on my own. It's possible we recorded it in this one session that Jimmy No showed famously during a big snowstorm, which we were quite mad about. But I don't think that was the session. I think I recorded this on my own with the intention that it would go on what would be our first album, maybe. Then the song came out on, we sold the tapes at shows. Um, we decided not to release the album. So we just put the demos out for sale to make some of the money back. And you'll see those tapes floating around sometimes. Some, one's called The Moon Tape, and there's another name. The songs were broken into different tapes. But we didn't really think anything of it. And then after Gish came out was so successful, the record company called and said, hey, we'd like to put out something else, like an EP. And then I said, well, we don't have any songs. <laughs> and they said, you don't have anything laying around? And I said, well, we got these demos from before. And they offered, I think, to pay some money to send us into the studio to record more or to finish some of the Gish songs that hadn't been finished. Blue being one of those songs, if anybody knows the Lull EP, which I think came out in 1992 and would have been the first appearance, I believe, of this song. Joe, you probably have the biographical data November there in front 5th, of you. November 5th, 1991. Oh, very good. So yeah, so it was one of these ad hoc throw together something because the record company put a gun to our head and said, we need more product, my favorite word in the record business. Uh, that would be the end of the story, save for the fact that it engendered two things. One, I was shocked how much people like the song. And to this day, people still come up and talk to me about the song by June. So you imagine something I just sort of wrote on a whim and recorded on a whim. It shocked me that people cared about it because, in essence, the effort didn't match the response. You know, in my mind, you need to work really hard and then people like what you do. And here's something we did like in five minutes and 10 minutes and People are still talking about it 34 years later. The other thing was, people would come up and say, well, who's June? I was going to ask. And Well, there you go, Kyle. And I would like be, what do you mean? Who's June? Like, well, this song's called By June. Who's June? Is there a June? I was like, why do you care? And so it became this kind of running gag that I would mention June in songs. It became the story of who is June. And so that's why June is in autumn. Because June, the fan, believes that June is about her, June. And I've had this happen to me, by the way. This is not something I made up in my silly brain. Like, I've had women think that I wrote songs about them, even though I didn't know them when I wrote the song, and that the name is for them, and so therefore there must be some sense of destiny. Cue the... Tough life. Music. <laughs> it's a little narcissistic. Um, I mean, I'm kind of cool with yeah. it. You know what I mean? I, my whole thing is go with what you got. <laughs> As he drinks his water there as a as a nice little moment of like mic drop. Well, I I'm getting this I'm getting the cotton mouth thing and I, I don't think it's very attractive for podcasting. <laughs> but I think that having that continuation and that story and that ethos that kind of builds with your fandom there 
where there are always questions and conversations, I think that that's, that kind of puts things at another level. You could look at just, you know, certain music as it's just music that comes out. But when you start trying to connect dots and story arcs, especially between albums, and I guess that's what Autumn really is all about, is you start to get really invested into the entire ethos that is the Smashing Pumpkins, that is Billy Corgan. I did an interview yesterday for Apple um, where the gentleman was asking about sort of the throwback nature of some of the guitar music on Autumn. And uh, he said, as I'm saying this, I want you to know I really like the Sierra album. I really like the progressive sort of synthesizer aspect of Sierra. So it's not, I'm not one of these people that doesn't like what you're doing if you go in a different direction. But I was sort of curious why you sort of wound back to this kind of old school guitar approach. And I said, well, actually, the, you know, the, the setup for Autumn put me in a, in a mind frame where I almost had to go back to tell the story of where these characters came from. In essence, this is part of their language and logic and would be the logic of Shiny. So it opened the door for me to look at it in a different way rather than thinking like, well, I've kind of go, got to go back to this because this is what people want from the pumpkins. And if I don't do it, they're going to be mad at me, which they're still going to be mad at me even if I say it. So I, I'm okay with saying it. Knock on wood, you know, I get it. Like, you know, more people like the guitar side of the band, but the historical aspect of the band is that the band has had success with hits, not always guitar music, and that the reason the band has an enduring legacy isn't just because it was a guitar band. And if the band had only been a guitar band, I think we would be relegated to that league of bands that's sort of seen as grunge era only. And the fact that we've been able to crawl out of the 90s and establish a legacy in the 2000s and beyond um, has everything to do with the fact that we started making those choices certainly by our third album. Um, and not our fifth or 18th. I have two questions about this song. Well, one's really a statement. You just mentioned that this was something you kind of threw together. It was a demo. So having this long lasting resonance with a fan base is impressive to you. I mean, obviously you've put a lot of heart, a lot of soul in some things that probably haven't connected in that way. So that's got to be a weird feeling to have the throwaway in a way remainder be the thing that connects, but maybe something that you really, really were invested in not have the same. That's the statement and follow up with that. And then the other thing is, you still haven't answered the question, who in the blue hell is June? Or are we just talking about a month? Sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you do have to establish in your own creative mind that value isn't established by what people care about. Because if you do get into that mindset, then why would you write some of the songs you write? Because de facto, you already know, oh, this majority of people isn't going to like these eight songs. I don't think that's a good philosophy for freedom, happiness, or artistic, progressive artistic accomplishment. I was writing a song last night, and just in form, because it was in 3-4, which is waltz time. Just think like a Strauss waltz, Viennese waltz. Not very popular in modern music. So just on that alone, you would say, well, don't bother with the waltz, because it's totally worthless in modern life. When I woke up this morning, especially dealing with some of the emotions that I was in, I found a way to round the song into something that I find quite valuable, and I was up this morning recording the song. So that's where it's like, I don't want that, uh, let's call it the crowd out there, to tell me what to do or what I should do, because I don't really think the crowd knows until you do it. The other thing, of course, is, and it's been seen in the last few years, people keep finding different value in other parts of my song catalog that weren't valuable before. The most obvious example being the commercial with We Only Come Out at Night, speaking of Apple again, who put that into a 
I think it was like a Super Bowl commercial or something. I mean, that's a pretty big look for a song that was an album track that easily could have been a throwaway track. I was thinking, is that in three, four times? Not quite, but it's close. To your other question, who is June? And I guess this is a good way to wrap up this uh, this very emotional podcast. There really isn't a June. And I think that's sort of the rosebud, ruby slipper, somewhere over the rainbow question, right? And even dovetails back to my friend Lisa. What is happiness in any given situation? I don't think we can really define it. I can sit here and complain about all the things that didn't happen to me, and somebody can say, hey, man, you've had a pretty good run. I could sit here as a friend of Lisa and say she didn't get all out of life all that she would have wanted, nor what her friends wished for her. And you could say, hey, <laughs> you were born into an incredible life. You never wanted for anything. Your father left you an incredible legacy, uh, nothing to be ashamed of. And as you saw recently, she was out helping promote the Elvis movie and was just at the Golden Globes, you know, the other night as part of the celebration of that movie's success. So it's all eye of the beholder stuff, right? And I think that's kind of what Wizard of Oz is about. She goes to this magical land, the ruby slippers, she defeats the witch, and, the, and what's the most important thing? She goes home. So the one thing we know about my friend now is she's home with her loved ones, her son and her father and the grandmother Gladys. I'm pretty sure that's Elvis's grandmother, grandmother's name, who, um, you know, I think Lisa, based on what I knew, had a lot of Gladys in her. So God bless. God bless the Presleys. God bless a lot of people. And God bless anybody listening. Talking about a lot of personal stuff today, but I want to circle it back to one thing that we harp on here, which is you're valuable. Don't let anybody tell you you're not valuable. Don't let anybody tell you what your happiness is. Live your happiness. Embrace every day. Because, like we've seen with my friend, you never know when it's the end of this uh, magical road that we're on. I think what I like about this podcast is we're celebrating all of it, the good and the bad. I once asked Jimmy Chamberlain if he had any regrets, and he said, no, not particularly. I mean, there's things I wish I'd done differently, but I'm where I'm at today because of all those things. And I thought that was quite beautiful. And Jimmy really lives by that. And I think he's an example to me as a friend, as a as a brother and uh, as a fellow parent, you know, how to live. Not backwards, but forwards. So, I don't know. The jury's still out on what happiness is when it comes to those things. But I will say, know that you're valuable. And if you're struggling, reach out. And as I was saying about my friend, do your best to keep reaching out if your friend's in trouble. Because um, you just never know. In this case, obviously, it had nothing to do with Lisa taking her own life. She was taken by God home. But I want to uh, at least know, at least someday, that my prayers were on her heart when she went. So, God bless everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yes. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10... We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.